you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, everyone, it is uh, such a blessing to be able to be here with all of you uh, today. And again, uh, especially for you in first service, uh, thank you for being able to celebrate Elisa's baptism with us. Um, Just a blessing to be able to be here and be a part of this wonderful church. Uh, Speaking of uh, wonderful church, this isn't necessarily part of the sermon initially, but I want to just... Uh, thank everyone who came here yesterday for our work day that worked incredibly hard uh, to put together and just kind of uh, help clean up our campus a little bit. So uh, can you just give a round of applause for people that were here? Even if you don't know who they were, um, they know who they are. um, And they lovingly teased me for walking around more than working. And that's okay, because I'm It's encouragement. I'm encouraging people. So I got more steps in, but they got more work done. So with that said, uh, it was just great to be able to be a part of this uh, this time yesterday. Um, If you've very first time here, been with us for years, again, just know you are prayed for, cared for, and loved before you showed up this morning, before you turned on your screen. uh, We pray for the services. We pray for God to meet us in times of worship and the time through his word, through the warmth of the community. And so know that you are prayed for before you showed up or before you uh, logged on this morning. And we are continuing our series uh, called The Armor of God, specifically looking at the shield of faith. Now, um, if you want to turn, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. We're also going to spend a lot of time in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. But as we uh, continue on, you know, as I was doing some prep prep for uh, this series and specifically the sermon, there are a lot of times, especially in this series, where I've shared before, there are specific things that are happening in my life that tend to reflect what we're being discussed, uh, what's being discussed on the Sunday morning. So two weeks ago, needing to go to the ER because I was feeling heart palpitations while I'm preaching about protecting your heart with the breastplate of righteousness. And, and then the idea of Last week, the sandals of peace and, and figuring out what does it mean to have peace in the midst of that and, and whether what I'm struggling with is purely physiological, whether it's anxiety, whether it's a mix of the two and navigating what that looks like. And as I'm preparing, I'm listening to Tony Evans' sermon about the shield of faith. And he has this section in the middle of there that talks about how faith has to be something that's not just what we believe, but also how we act upon it. And he used one of those examples, and maybe you've experienced this listening to sermons, whether here or elsewhere, where it feels like the example is so awkwardly put exactly there for you in that moment that you wonder if the preacher has like microphones everywhere to know what's going on in your life. We don't, but the Lord will sometimes know exactly what illustration needs to be shared. And so he was talking about how the idea of navigating, you know, when you have to have faith in something. It's like you have to go through different steps. It's the first time you go and you're experiencing something that's not feeling well. Before you go to the doctor, we would often try to say, how can we mitigate this with maybe over-the-counter medication or getting better sleep or diet? You try to figure out on your own different ways in which you can, um, you know, maybe stop or curtail whatever's going on that makes sure that you're feeling uncomfortable. Then you might get to a point where you say, okay, I'm going to start, you know, I'm going to actually reach out to a doctor and set up an appointment. And then you get to a point where the doctor says, they do various tests and things like that. And then they, you may get to a point where they offer you a prescription. And then you have to, he, he makes a joke about how um, 
He makes a joke about how, you know, it shows an extra layer of faith in that doctor because no one can ever read prescription notes. And so he's like, that in of itself is an act of faith. Um, and then you go to the pharmacist and you have to somehow believe that the pharmacist is the only one that can read what the doctor has written down and that you have to trust that the pharmacist will then give you the right medication and then you have to decide to take it. And what he's talking about is that every one of those layers has a dynamic of faith in it. You, you try to do things on your own first, and then when you realize, I'm at the end of my own abilities, you go to someone who's an expert. And then you go and you listen to their, example, or their um, uh, diagnosis, or at least their thought process, and then you trust them in order to get the prescription. But then you trust the pharmacist to get the right thing. And then lastly, you have to decide whether or not you're going to take the medication. Because simply going to the doctor and just believing that the doctor knows what's happening isn't enough to necessarily get to the point of faith. You can have faith in something, but faith in action has to be one and the same, or there has to be two sides of the same train track, or two, uh, if you're in a boat and you have a rowboat, there has to be oars on either side, or else you just kind of go in circles. Faith and action, faith and works, faith and deeds have to be coinciding together, because if you just have one, if you just have faith and say, well, I believe the right thing about Jesus, but it hasn't changed the way I am, it doesn't change the way I think, it doesn't change the way I live, I'm not taking the prescription and prescribed how to live my life according to his word, then we're not really living that out. And here's the proof of that. You can have right theology about who Jesus is and still be incredibly far from him. And here's how we know that. James chapter 2, verse 19, he's talking, uh, James is writing and he's talking about this idea of faith and works. And, and you will show me your faith by what you believe and I'll show you my faith by my works. And then he talks about how even the demons, he says, he says you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. So we're talking about the spiritual forces of evil. We're talking about spiritual warfare. We're talking about the battle that you and I cannot see, but we feel the remnants and the effects of it every single day. And in that spiritual battle, when there's angels and demons and there's forces of the rulers and authorities and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, we recognize that the demons know who Jesus is. We see this in the gospels whenever there is a demon possession and they say, truly, we know you are the son of God. Just, just what do you want with us? Or do not send us out. Like they know immediately. They can have the right belief, knowledge, understanding of who Jesus is and still be incredibly far from him, correct? So here's the thing. Faith for us cannot simply be right belief. Does right belief need to be part of it? Absolutely. We need to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not one option of many. He is the one option. And so we need to recognize that. However, if we recognize, okay, I can't do life on my own, and I'm going to go to the physician, the heavenly physician who can help care for me in the midst of this. But then if we don't do what he prescribes, then we can have the right faith or the right knowledge. But faith in actions is what we're called to live. So when we talk about this morning, the shield of faith, we're navigating the idea of right belief as well as right action upon that belief. It's both and. It's not either or. Because we're going to soon realize and we're going to soon dive into God's word together. The fact that because there are different um, 
attacks and arrows and things that the enemy likes to um, cast towards us. We can have the right belief, but it'd be like having a shield in the midst of his armor, knowing it's the right shield, knowing how important it is to have, and leaving it at home, exposing yourself to attack. We need to know it, and then we need to take it up. We need to know it. We need to act upon it. But sometimes we need to go through different levels of what we know, how that impacts us, and unpacking the truth from the lies that we might believe so that we know we're taking up the right shield and not a shield that just feels right to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, whether live in person, live online, watching or listening later throughout the week. Lord, I thank you that each person who hears my voice is someone who is your masterpiece, someone that you created and you shaped and you formed and, and you breathe life to, that you know all the hairs on their head, you know all the cries of their heart, and you know them so well and you love them. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have the eyes to see what you have for us, the ears to hear, and the heart to be receptive to your word. I pray that as we dive in to your holy word, the Bible, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start again. We're going to start off in Ephesians 6, and we're eventually going to unpack Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 together. But as we get started in Ephesians 6, verse 16, we've been explaining the different pieces of the armor of God. And we've talked about how the first three pieces, they have this dynamic of having girded yourself with truth. Remember, the word for belt isn't actually in the Greek. When Paul writes it, it talks about the loins. And so it's something that you've done already. You having girded yourself, your loins with truth. Then having put the breastplate of righteousness in place and having fitted yourself or shod yourself with the feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. And we talked about how each one of those things, the verbs have this idea, this is something that you've already done, that has happened to you when you have a right relationship with Jesus, that you are able to have the truth be the center of your life, that your righteousness in Christ, that our righteousness is filthy rags, but because he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And so then we recognize, okay, we have truth girded around our loins. We have the breastplate that is attached to the truth, attached to the belt to help us withstand the weight and guard our hearts against different attacks. And then we have the feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel, the peace, the, the type of peace that has a vertical axis, that is peace between us and God. And then the kind of peace that allows, because of our peace with us and God, it allows us to have peace with one another. That one of the beautiful things about God's church, his body of Christ, his bride, is the fact that we could come from different countries, different socioeconomic statuses, have different thoughts on different things, and yet what unites us, who unites us in Jesus, is stronger than that which can divide us. And so we talked about how to be shod in the feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace, is to have stability during hardships and have oneness during our differences. Then this leads us to Ephesians 6, verse 16, where now it is no longer saying you've having done this, and now it tells us to take up different pieces of the armor. It says this, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Tony Evans uses the example that the the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. That's like the uniform as a Christian. And so he uses the example of a baseball player who, when he wears a uniform no matter what, but when it's time to bat, 
he grabs the bat and his helmet. When it's time to go out into the field, he has a baseball cap and then he has his glove. And it's taking up certain parts of the uniform that you need or the tools that you need, having already put on the uniform, but taking up the tools that you need for those specific tasks. And we talked about the difference between a uniform and a costume a few weeks ago. That costume is when you want to dress up like something you're not. A uniform is when you put on that which you are. And you live and you... And you um, and you live with that there. So in addition to all this, this verbiage can also, one translation or one commentator talks about how this can also mean uh, to protect all the others or, or, or to cover everything else. In other words, he's talking about the shield of faith being this specific shield. No, you could go back to the next slide, the coming slide. That's perfect. So he talks about this word for shield in the Greek is called tyreon and is derived from thyra, which means a door, and refers to the large oblong or oval scutum. In, the, in the, the Latin, it's the word scutum. In the Greek, it's the word thyreon, and it's the idea of a large shield. Here's how they describe it. It consisted of two layers of wood glued together, covered with linen and hide, and bound with iron. It was about two, in, like, two feet by four feet, um, two feet wide by four feet tall. And the reason it was called a door, the Greek word for it is a door, is that it was big enough to be able to, like the size of a door, so in the midst of a battle, when you have the full armor on, when a Roman soldier would have his full armor on, when the attacks would come, he would still have his shield and he would be able to hide behind it and crouch behind it completely. So the shield of faith is what protects even that extra layer of when, some, when the enemy tries to attack our hearts. We have the breastplate of righteousness, but it's our faith in Jesus that allows to take those arrows first. We have the helmet of salvation, but when those thoughts come at us that we need to make captive, the reason we need to make it captive in Christ is because we have our faith in Christ to know that what he says about us is greater and truer than what the world or what the enemy would say about us. And so it's recognized that in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith to cover every other piece of the armor. The shield of faith is our first line of defense and it's large enough through which we can, or that we can hide behind it. Here's a picture of it. Um, again, just an example of what that would look like. And so the idea is this is the shield. This is a thyreon. This is the, comes from the word door in order to show us that the soldier could hide behind it. At the end of last week's sermon, I talked about a scene from the gladiator when the different, the different gladiators had their shields together. And it was a little bit more, instead of a linear one, it was a little bit more like a, um, a circle. They had an official, um, it's called the testudo formation or the turtle formation, where Roman soldiers would stand shoulder to shoulder. They'd be able to advance upon uh, a city that they're attacking. And as the city would try to launch things at them, the people in the front would have their shields this way. And then every row would put a shield above them so that they were able to be protected as they were advancing. They were able to be protected as they were standing firm. So this shield was a big deal. It was a vital piece of the armor. Just as our faith is obviously just this vital piece of the armor of God, the one that protects all the others. So... We've been using this list over the past couple of weeks throughout our series that the enemy schemes based on Ephesians 6 chapter, or verse 11, when it talks about we're fighting against not flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, the dark, uh, the rulers, authorities, and the powers of this dark world. And then before that, it talks about the, to keep an eye out, to stand firm against the devil's schemes. So we've used some of these, and we talked about how deception is combated with the belt of truth. 
how denial of who you are in Christ and who, what Jesus has done for you, well, that has battled by the, battle, uh, the breastplate of righteousness. That discord, enmity, division, that is separated, or excuse me, that is battled against with the gospel of peace because it's the peace with us and God that allows us to have peace with one another. So today, we're talking about how one of the enemy's schemes is doubt and how that is what we need to be able to hold up the shield of faith. Now, let's be really clear about something right off the bat. Doubt in and of itself is not necessarily the opposite of faith. We can have doubts and not, we don't understand everything about everything about God because you know why? If we did, we would be God. We have questions, we don't know, but when we have those doubts, we go to God's word and we go to see what is true, what is objective. We talked about truth as being God's opinion on a matter as we see through his word. But what we see here is that even in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus has, is about to ascend into heaven, and he gathers his people and he's, his disciples, and he's about to give the Great Commission, the, the idea of going to all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them and commanding them to obey, or obey everything I'm teaching you. That's verse 18 through 19, and then 20 says, and lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. But we always skip over verse 17. And verse 17 talks about the disciples were there, and yet some doubted. They'd literally seen Jesus come back to life. They'd literally seen him resurrected. They'd been with him for several days, and they're still like, I don't understand this. So friends, if you are in a place of doubting your faith, let me encourage you that a small, like a sliver of doubt does not mean that you need to lose your faith. Uh, I forget the name of the book, uh, and I'll try to remember it later, but it's the idea that you can either doubt towards God Jesus, I don't understand this. Can you help me understand this? Lord, I don't get this, and, and I want to believe. Just like the man in Mark 9 says, help me with my unbelief, Jesus. We want to believe. You can either doubt towards God, or you can doubt away from God, which is where many of us may fall if we do not run to him with these things. So doubt in and of itself can be part of what grows and strengthens our faith. In the same way that you hear about the, the tree roots get strongest when they face stronger winds, our faith could be strongest when we have doubts and we doubt towards God. We run towards God with them because then we're on the other side of that. Our faith is even stronger. So if you have doubts, don't think that means, well, I can't believe in Jesus anymore because I don't know everything. None of us will know everything. But we cannot let what we don't know Stop us from having faith in Jesus because he's the one we do know. So it's recognizing that let's not let what we're not fully understanding stop us from living based off of what we do understand. So let's jump back into Ephesians 6 verse 16. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, one of those aspects of that thyreon, or, or the scutum, if you're using the, um, if you're using the uh, Latin word, is the idea that because it had some linen on the front, what soldiers would do is that when they were going into battle, they would often dip that, that linen, or maybe it was a, an animal hide up the, uh, um, on the front of the shield, and they would dip that in water. Because what would happen is that there would be times where enemies would shoot flaming arrows at them. And you got to remember, this is, these are pieces of wood, and yes, they're bound with iron, but if an arrow is um, lit a fire and it hits the wood, then it could, one, destroy the shield, 
Two, cause mass confusion. Three, it could cause the person holding the shield to cast it aside, not to be burned. And if we get rid of our faith or if we lose the shield, we are all the more susceptible to the attacks on the other parts of our armor. So here's what Titus Livius, who lived around the same time, first century in Greece, here's what he expressed and he talked about the weapons of these flaming arrows. But here's what he says. What caused the greatest fear was that this weapon, again, is like a catapult that shot arrows. And real quick, arrows doesn't just mean when we think of like, you know, small arrows. Like these could be, uh, another word for it would be missiles. Another word would be like javelins. The idea of like bigger, like actual spears or projectiles that were bigger than what we would just typically think of as arrows. So there were weapons that would shoot this, lit a fire against the Roman soldiers. So the greatest fear was that this weapon even though it stuck in the shield and did not penetrate the body, the, the, the shield was well made. It stopped them from hitting the body. When it was discharged with the middle part on fire and bore along a much greater flame produced by the mere motion, so it's the fire is increasing as the air is going and it's going towards the target, it obliged the armor to be thrown down and exposed the soldier to succeeding blows. So the enemy can just start launching these things in, our, in the lives there, and they would throw down their, their shield, and then any part that was not fully covered by the breastplate would be exposed. Every part that was not covered by any of the other armor pieces could be exposed. The shield of faith is the door through which we can hide behind fully when we cast aside our faith because there's distraction or chaos or discord or whatever it is in our lives. When the enemy tries to attack us in that way, if we don't have it dipped in water, in our case, you, we might want to liken to the idea of dipping to the water of the word. So it's our faith that is soaked in the truth of God's word so that when the enemy comes to attack, those arrows are extinguished. The wet linen removes the fire so that then they're able to still fight. Marvin Vincent, when he's talking about he quotes someone from the, this around the same time. He talks about this. So soldiers often fought side by side with a solid wall, the testudo of shields. I mentioned that earlier. But even a single-handed combatant found himself sufficiently protected by the shield. After the siege of Dyrrhachium, Siva counted no less than 220 darts, or arrows is the same word, sticking into his shield. So even one of those, if set ablaze, or even one of those without the shield would completely eradicate him. The shield had to be big enough, strong enough, and we had to take it up enough in order to withstand those attacks. Now here's what I'm going to do is I have the, the last several minutes that we have together. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, and I, I'm going I'm to unpack a three arrows that the enemy likes to launch at us. These are not all-encompassing. There are other ways the enemy likes to attack us, whether it's invasive thoughts, whether it's things that we know not to be true about ourselves or about others, but we give it just a little leeway, and then just like an arrow that is lit ablaze, if we let the enemy in just a little bit and we don't block it, his lies can set a fire to our lives. And so it's, we're going to look at three, not the only three, but here are three different arrows that the enemy likes to hit, uh, uh, attack us with to launch these fiery darts, these fiery missiles against us for which we need the shield of faith to help extinguish them as they come. So the first one, as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, is the idea of the arrow of sinfulness. This says, and it says you did wrong, in parentheses, and you always will. 
There's an idea that we talk about with the definition of guilt. Guilt is you did something wrong or you did wrong. I remember, it's so weird the things you remember as a kid. And I remember um, when I was younger that I was probably about four or five because my brother, who was older, was still in the house at the time. And I remember that um, he had asked me, can you go check the house because he was doing dishes? We don't have a big house. It wasn't like a hard thing for me. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I checked. There's nothing there. And I just, I just, just completely wasn't true. Like, I hadn't looked. I hadn't tried. And later on, there was a glass. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, there, someone else saw it. I think my dad found it or something. And it's just one of those where I remember, like, oh, man, I did something wrong. I lied to my brother about that. I remember I was a little bit older then. My mom has asthma, and so she would have an inhaler. And I remember that one time, just for like, I was just curious about it, that I just like, um, I squeezed the inhaler just one time and stuff came out. Not at me or at anyone, I was just curious. And then I remembered, I was like, I felt so guilty. I was like, I never told my mom about the inhaler. So mom, if you're watching, I'm sorry, no. But it's one of those dynamics where it's like the little things. Sometimes when we have these things we've done wrong, we can have this guilt. Now, is guilt in and of itself a bad thing? No, no, guilt shows us that we've done wrong. And so there's a difference between you did something wrong. You, you, you made a mistake, whether, whether unintentionally you did something you shouldn't have, or intentionally you did something you shouldn't have. Or the one that we don't like to talk about, there's the sins of commission, the things we commit, the, the wrong things we do. The flip side, James 4, 7 tells us about how if you know the right thing to do and don't do it, that is sin for you as well. So then we also have what's called the sins of omission. When we omit, we don't do the good we should do. So whether it's commission, something you commit, omission, something you omit, there are sins that we have. And when we feel like we did something wrong and we know we did wrong, it's okay for us to admit I did wrong. We've talked about earlier, 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, God is righteous and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Guilt shows us where we've gone wrong. But it's this last part that's dangerous for us because sinfulness shows us, tells us you did wrong and you always will. There's no hope for you. You will always fall into the same temptations. You will always fall into the same traps. That problem you've had will always be a problem you have, so you may as well give up. This is where we need to be careful. Ephesians 2, when Paul is writing to the Ephesians, starting in verse 1, he says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So let's stop here. You were, you were dead in your transgressions. If it was based purely on, like, there's no saying, oh, you weren't that guilty because you didn't know better. No, no. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous on our own. No, not one. All of us need, the wages of sin is death for everyone, and yet the grace of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And so it's recognizing that without Christ, we are separated and our sins have not been paid for. And so when we still continue on in the ways of the world, when we still follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air, we refer to the enemy, we refer to Satan. This idea of we still follow his advice. Even if he was in front of us, we say, no, I don't believe you. But when we hear the reverberations of his advice throughout the culture, we say, oh, yeah, I, 
God probably does want me just to be happy. I will make decisions that make me happy rather than God wants us to be holy and true happiness comes from holiness and a right relationship with God. But it's this idea of saying, you were once this way. You're guilty. But we continue on. All of us, let's go to the next slide. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But I don't know what it is for you when you have a, a temptation that it's just something you feel like you just cannot, if it's there, you just feel like it's going to happen. You're going to give in, you're going to, whatever it is. And so it's something where we have guilt. But when we've already resigned ourselves to giving in to temptation, when we've already resigned ourselves to thinking that our sinfulness is greater than God's, Jesus' righteousness, when we think that our identity is as purely sinner and not as saint and co-heir with Christ when we have a relationship with him, what identity are we falling under? Yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm a sinner saved by grace. I will not get it all right in this world, but I'm so grateful Jesus did so I can have a way. I'm a sinner, but I'm not stuck there. Jesus made a way where there was no way. He's the ultimate peacemaker. He goes into the conflict and he makes a path for us. Marvin Vincent, he says this when he's talking about this idea of temptation and the enemy's attacks. Temptation is thus represented as impelled from a distance. In other words, this is the enemy is launching temptations at us from afar with his fiery darts, his missiles, his arrows. Satan attacks by indirection through good things from which no evil is suspected. One of the best tempt, uh, definitions for temptation, I believe it's C.S. Lewis, that talks about how temptation or sin is an illegitimate way to fulfill a legitimate desire. That God gives us the desire for food in illegitimate ways to give into gluttony. God gives us a desire for intimacy in illegitimate way is finding it in any other way than how God has designed it. So we get to this point where it's saying he wants to attack from a distance and it's good things taken in a wrong way that can cause us to sin. He said, there's a hint of the propagating power, and this is what we're talking about. One sin draws another in its track. The flame of the fire-tipped dart spreads. One sin shot at us in the wrong spot without our shield sets a fire to our lives. Temptation acts on susceptible material. If there's kindling of, of temptation and, and trying to figure out how far can I go towards sin without sinning. And we create kindling in our lives. And then when we get shocked, when we get burned, it's saying we need to get rid of that. It's, if temptation acts on susceptible material, we have a shield of faith that has been dipped in water that has protected us from the flaming arrows of the evil one. So when it comes, it doesn't just stop the projectile from hitting us. It extinguishes the fire in our lives. And so let's not give it the enemy's susceptible material through which he can attack that can create this devastation in our lives. We continue on, Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, because of his great love for us, God, who, because, uh, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved.
no matter what you've done, God's grace is enough. No matter what you haven't done that you ought to have done, God's grace is enough. No matter what thing that you still have that you've not confessed yet, and yes, you know, uh, squirting an inhaler and not putting in dishes is very small. And I don't want you to think, if that's the worst thing you've done in your life, Pastor, then you've not that bad. No, no. It's just amazing what we can remember when we think about our childhood or things that have held on to us. It is by grace you have been saved. This is not something you or I can earn. This is not something you or I can make happen of our own will and volition. This is not something that you and I can make happen. You cannot make yourself alive. We were dead in our transgressions, and Christ made us alive. Our goal is not to, or Jesus didn't come, as we've heard before. I I wish I knew who said it originally, but he didn't come to make bad people good. He came to bring dead people to life. So the first arrow is this arrow of sinfulness. This one that says, you did wrong. Okay, we can acknowledge our guilt. But then when it says, and you always will, it starts to move from a, an action attack. You did wrong. Okay, I can receive that. And it starts to move towards an identity. Well, then I'm always someone who gets it wrong. And I'm always someone who's going to mess up. I'm always someone who's going to give in to the same temptation. I'm always someone who's going to have fires ablaze in my life. So why even take up the shield? Because I'm already exposed. Second one that we look at is not just the arrow of sinfulness. It's the arrow of self-confidence. The arrow of self-confidence is, while I did wrong, I can admit that, but I can do enough right on my own to be okay. It's the mindset that says, I know that, you know, I've messed up, and, and I've, I've heard these conversations. Well, I want to come back to church, but I need to be made right. You know, I need, I need to do some things right first before I do that. Or I, I want to get baptized, but I need to make sure that I'm a perfect person first before I get baptized. Friends, no perfect person has ever been baptized other than Jesus, and he did it to fulfill all righteousness' sake. It wasn't because he needed to be able to be baptized, but he's setting that example for us. So no one is going to be perfect, and we can never do enough right on our own. For some of you, you hear that, you say, I can prove you wrong. It's a challenge. I'm not challenging you here. I'm trying to speak the truth in love. For some of you, you think that is a relief off my shoulders because I've been working and I've been grinding and I've been trying and I've been hustling and I've been striving to be good enough in the eyes of maybe a parent who never showed you that affection, maybe a loved one who dismissed you. Maybe just in the eyes of God himself, you think, I need to work and earn enough. And then every time something bad happens in your life, you throw away the shield of faith because you say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I'm going to do and I'm going to be able to be good enough to be right in your sight. And he's saying, you're not holding my shield of faith. You're holding your tiny shield of self-confidence. You're holding a small shield that cannot withstand all the arrows of the evil one because your confidence in yourself, your own ability to be good enough is not enough. It's when we lay down our lives and it's when we recognize he's the only one that allows us or he's the only one that, how do I put this? It's only his faith in him, not faith in ourselves that can ever make us right with God. Ephesians 2, 6 through 7 continues on. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, 
in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of, the gra- of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Romans 2, Paul says it's his kindness, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. That his grace, this free gift, this unmerited favor that you or I can never earn has been given to us and it's expressed through his kindness, his mercies. And it's this idea of saying, none of this is something we could do on our own. Marvin Vincent continues on when he talks, he warns against self-confidence. He says, self-confidence is combustible. So we're using, again, verbiage that can be lit on fire when the enemy tries to shoot his flaming arrows. Self-confidence is combustible. Faith in doing away with dependence on self takes away fuel for the dart. It creates sensitiveness to holy influences by which the power of temptation is neutralized. It enlists the direct aid of God. It's saying when we put aside the confidence in our own abilities to do anything on our own of, of earning from God, and we lay that down, then we're able to take up and put our faith in the right person. It's not us, but it's in Jesus. It's sometimes the hardest thing for us is that we're trying to run around with two shields or, or we're running around with a smaller shield that we think will protect us, but it's only our confidence. It's not a door. We can't hide all the way behind it. And the enemy knows your struggles and my struggles perfectly. The enemy knows the gaps in your armor. He knows the gaps in mine. The enemy has bait that he knows specifically you or I will fall for and that it'll lead us astray. So again, as if Paul didn't already clarify the need for grace as the one that saved, as what saves us, he reiterates it again, starting in verse eight and nine. He says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. This is not from ourselves. It's not our own confidence. It's not our own ability. It's nothing we can do. And yet the enemy would love for you to think you can do this on your own. You don't need other people in your life because you are good enough to be able to be strong on your own. It's to say, you can just, don't tell anyone about your struggles. Don't tell anyone about your temptations. Don't tell anyone. You are strong enough to will yourself into righteousness. But the grace that has been given to us through faith is not from ourselves. It's a gift so that no one will boast. There's a, a missionary named John Patton. He's a picture of him here, Scottish. And he was uh, a missionary in uh, the Pacific Ocean. And so he was someone who he wanted to, he knew he wanted to dedicate his life to being a missionary. So he left. And then when he got to the Hebrides area, he knew that he needed to translate. So he got to John chapter 1, verse 12, the idea of believing in Jesus. And so he, he wasn't sure, how do I translate this word for belief? The story has it that... Um, the culture was cannibalistic. The culture that he was at was one where belief or faith or trust was not even a concept for which they had a word. Imagine trying to share about Jesus and how it's by grace through faith we've been saved in a culture that doesn't even understand, not even grace, but faith. Doesn't even understand the free gift. Doesn't understand what trust is, what belief is, what saving faith even looks like. 
So Warren Wearsby relates this story in, in his commentary. He says, when missionary John G. Patton was translating the Bible in the Outer Hebrides, he searched for the exact word to translate believe. Finally, he discovered it. The word meant lean your whole weight upon. That is what saving faith is, leaning your whole weight upon Jesus Christ. When you came into this room today, if you're joining us online, whatever it is that you're sitting on, you, didn't, you weren't worried about whether or not it would hold your weight. You just plop down and you sit. And that's the example that we see in this is that there was someone who was grabbing a seat um, or he was meeting with someone and he's like, what am I doing now? And the person said, you're standing up. And then John Patton sits down onto his chair, says, now what am I doing? You are leaning your whole weight upon that chair. And he says, that's the word I'm going to use for belief. Because it's the understanding that it can hold me. But like we mentioned earlier, it's also the action that proves the understanding. It's I'm going to lean my whole weight upon Jesus Christ. If we are, I don't know if you ever had a time when you go and there's a smaller chair or something where you aren't quite as confident about. And maybe it's just me, but you have those moments where you sit down and you kind of like put your weight like on your front feet and just kind of like barely, you know, try to put a little bit of weight on the back because you just don't know. Well, that's how we are when we are trying to live on our own confidence. It's, 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 we're trying to, like, oh, yeah, no, I'm sitting, but I'm uncomfortable, and I'm putting more weight on myself than trusting and having faith in that chair. When we are living our lives trying to be our own saviors, the ones who we can determine that we're good enough on our own effort, it's we're not leaning and putting our whole weight on what Jesus did on the cross. Tony Evans talks about how grace is the deposit that has been put aside for us in Christ. And faith is the access to that deposit. It's imagining if you got, um, you know, if someone gifted you a house and you have the house there, but until you have the key, you don't have access to the gift. Maybe it's the idea of you get, uh, someone leaves money for you into an account and then they give you the pin code or they give you the debit card and say, now you can access what has been laid aside for you. The grace that has been given to us is a gift we cannot earn. But that gift is available to all of us. The question is, will we have, will we take up the access? Will we, through faith, enter into the beauty of the gift? Or will we think, no, I got this on my own and try to use like pliers or like try to pry open the door or try to just push every button combination on the pin pad in order to get in? It's not gonna work. So I just have... One last point remaining. This one, I think, is, could be one of the hardest ones for us. Some of us think, okay, yeah, I've got sin. I've done wrong. And sometimes I feel like, yeah, I, I think I always will. There's that. Then there's self-confidence. We think, I can do this on my own. But when we move from the fact we realize we really can't do it on our own, and we really can't be okay on our own effort, we go from I did wrong to I'll try to do as much right as possible to the era of shame that says I am wrong. It moves completely then from action, I did something wrong, to identity, I am wrong, I am worthless, I have no purpose, there's no reason for me to be here, there's no way God could love me, there's no way anyone could love me. I have to hide my sin, hide my shame, hide from everyone, and I have to make sure that I put on a perfect facade because if anyone truly knew me, they would never truly love me. And we put up these walls and the enemy, he loves shame. He loves launching that arrow after arrow. 
he loves getting into our identity and saying, you can never be lovable. You have no purpose. God made a mistake on you. He loves this arrow, and it's such a hard one for us to see and to recognize because if we've been shot with it enough times, it starts to just feel like part of who we are. Verse 10 of Ephesians 2. For we are God's handiwork. Another translation of this, we are God's masterpiece. He didn't make a mistake with you. He didn't have leftover clay one day. I was like, oh, I better make a JP sometime, I guess. Well, we'll just take this, a little bit of that. There you go, half Guamanian. Like, it's not like he just took these things and he had leftover clay without purpose or without hope. There is no one that I am speaking to right now. There's no one who's hearing my voice right now that is not loved by God and created by him for good works. There is no one here that God looks at and say, oh, that was a mistake. He or she was a mistake. You were God's masterpiece. He created and shaped and formed you for the reason and the purpose for which you were made. Whether or not we know that yet, part of faith is leaning into the fact of knowing that no matter how much the enemy tries to shoot shame in your direction, the faith in who God is and what he wants to do in your life. Not that it'll be perfect, not that it'll be easy. This is not prosperity, health, or wealth gospel. But it is saying, because you will be attacked. But will you be able to allow the faith in who Jesus is to guard you from the shame arrows? We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That means you are beloved. That means you have a purpose and you have a role in, in this world. Priscilla Shire in her, uh, just closing last couple minutes here, Priscilla Shire says this, the enemy knows he can't destroy you. You're eternally secure in Jesus when we have our faith in him, but he fully intends to sidetrack your attention by setting any number of internal fires ablaze in your life, like insecurity, intimidation, anxiety, worry, or busyness. Let's go to the next one, please. He wants you to contemplate disobedience, entertain crippling doubts, and burden your conscience with paralyzing accusations so you'll be unfocused while he sneaks up from behind. He wants to wreak havoc on the flames and the flames of your life so he could sneak around. And he's so close to you, don't even hear him speaking his lies into you anymore. Starts to sound familiar. Your guard is down because you felt like you've let God down but we won't allow ourselves to just lay our lives down to follow him and then trust that who he is and who God says about, what God says about us is more valid than what the enemy whispers in our ears and attacks. Priscilla, or excuse me, Marvin Vincent says this as well. He says, the Christian shield effectively counteracts the danger of such diabolical missiles, not merely by arresting or deflecting them, but by actually quenching the flames to prevent them from spreading. Maybe some of you have heard of uh, C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. The concept of it is that there is a, a senior demon who is training up his nephew. So the senior demon Screwtape is training up his nephew, Wormwood, in order to how best to come alongside and attack a Christ follower. And there's various different ways. But in chapter 8, he talks about this idea of faith. And he talks about what it looks like for someone who still has faith in the midst of difficult circumstances. Because the enemy wants to be able to distract, deflect, attack, and he wants to come after each and every one of us so that we would be disabled and not fulfill the beauty and the purpose and the goal and the role that God has for us. And so 
when Screwtape is riding to Wormwood, he writes here, he, this is referring to God now, God wants them, Christians, to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. When you're, if you've had little kids, been around little kids, and they're first learning how to take their first steps, you don't get mad when they stumble right away. You say, you encourage them, you try to get them to keep going. You say, here, come to dad. And then they stumble and then they fall. But even if it hurts for a little bit, you want them to learn to walk. So you have to let go of their hand in order to, that they can walk to you. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger. Again, the enemy's cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, go to the next slide, please, but intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished and asks why he's been forsaken and still obeys. Some of us, when things go wrong, we cast aside our faith. We allow doubts to take over. We allow our identity to be seen as sinner, not sinner saved by grace. We think we can do this on our own. We think whatever it is. But when the Lord allows things in our lives, because he's saying, I want you to learn how to walk with me and to me. And we stumble, we fall. We cannot do this on our own. But when he gets to that point where then he says, we say, God, I don't see you anywhere in my life right now, but I'm still gonna follow you. God, not my will, but yours be done. That's when we start to realize the importance of faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Hebrews 11, one says, and then verse six of Hebrews 11 says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because how many times would people say, oh, I believe, I believe, I believe, and then they don't live it out in action. If you have a kid who says, oh yeah, I'll do the chores, I'll check and make sure there's no more dishes around, and they never do, you get upset. You think you're not really listening to me. You're not really acting on what I'm asking you to do. But when the storms are around us, when there's chaos and discord and frustration, when there's pain and heartache, when we get the arrows of shame and the arrows of sinfulness and the arrows of self-confidence, and we say, God, all I see around me is the fire of the chaos of this world around me, and yet I'll still take up the shield. I'll still walk by faith, not by sight, not by what I see around me. That is when the enemy knows he's in trouble. And that's when the Lord knows we're taking up the shield of faith. I love this definition of faith um, because Tony Evans has a great way with words. He says this, faith is acting like it is so, even when it is not so, so that it might be so simply because God said so. It's in the midst of the trials, the tragedies, and the tribulations, saying, God, I don't see anything about what you're doing, but if you tell me to walk out upon the water, the wind and the waves won't stop me. It's saying, at your word, Lord. Now let's close with this. I know I've said that three times, but I really mean it this time. So uh, this idea, you guys remember what the word was that we talked about for the word shield in the Greek? It's the word thyreon comes from the word thyro, which means door. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the gate. He says, I am the door. If anyone wants to enter the Father, he has to come through me. 
That word for gate in John chapter 10, verse 9, is the same word for door that we get the root word for the shield. That for some of us, God, we see in Revelation, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever lets me in, I'll eat with them. I'll spend time with them. That there is the door of faith that we cannot enter into the sheepfold, into the people of God without going through Jesus as the door. So every time we take up the shield of faith, we take up the thyram, we take up what is the door of faith that reminds us that all the arrows the enemy tries to sling have hit Jesus first. All the ways in which we have fallen short and we're sinful, yes, Jesus took that sin. He looks at our list and says, paid in full. All the times that we try to be self-confident, think we could do it on our own, we are confronted with our brokenness. We recognize it is by grace through faith we are saved, not from ourselves so that no one could boast. And we remember that how much, no matter how much shame we feel, we recognize that Jesus took all the score and all the shame, all the pain so that we would not be known as shameful, but that we would be known as beloved. And we can hide behind Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. And no matter what we face, no matter how many arrows, whether it's one well-placed one or 220 like Siva, we know that we can hide behind Jesus and he is our shelter, he is our refuge, he is our strength. So we too can say, it's believing that it is so, even when it is not so, so that it might be so, because God said so. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, Lord, and recognizing all the different dynamics of things we're talking about and Lord, maybe some of us are here and we have the right belief about who Jesus is. We believe he's a son of God, but we're not living it out. May we look at James 2 and, and may we read 14 through 26 in order to unpack what that means. Because even the ones we have that are waging war on us, even the demons and the spiritual forces of evil know who Jesus is. But they shudder. Whereas we don't have to shudder. We can bow down and worship. Lord, I know that some of us, we're struggling, whether it's with sinfulness and thinking we'll always get something wrong, whether it's self-confidence and thinking, well, I could be good enough on my own, or whether it's shame to say, I am wrong. This is an identity thing that I can no longer find my identity in Christ because I'm so broken and far from you. Whatever it is, Lord, may you equip us to take up the shield of faith, the one that reminds us of the door that the only way to the Father is through the door, through the gate of Jesus. So may we find our hope and our faith in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening, so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.